Our scripture reading today comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 19. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Christ City, I want to live a life full of faith. I want to live a life of confidence in who I am and what I'm doing in this world as a follower of Jesus. And I want that confidence to actually change the way that I live my life, to change me, to change the things that I do so that on the day that I die, when my life is over, I can look back and by the grace of God, I'll see some of his work. Sure, there'll be sin. His grace is big enough to cover my sin, but I'll, I'll be able to see that, that I've lived for Jesus. See, Christ City, we need confidence in our faith today. If we're to serve God well in this city, we need confidence in our Christian faith. There may have been a time uh, in history, maybe even recent history in Vancouver, when we didn't need as much confidence in our Christian faith. There may have been a time when Christianity uh, gave you a little bit more social credit than it does today. When just mentioned that you were a Christian was a really positive thing. And you're like, oh yeah, that's a good thing. That's excellent. I'm just happy that you're a Christian. And at that time, maybe it would have been the case that, that having a bit more of a middling, mediocre Christian faith and a middling, mediocre Christian life uh, lived out in response to that, that faith, that, that kind of worked for you. But Christ City, I don't think it works anymore. I think it'll be harder and harder for it to work in the future. I think that mediocre confidence and mediocre faith are the recipe for all of the deconversion stories that we're seeing in the world around us. I think John the Apostle knows this. And John desires to build a deep confidence, a sincerity of faith in the church in Asia Minor. And in our passage this morning, John's going to continue teaching us about the love of God in order that we would increase in our Christian confidence. First, as you learn to see the Spirit at work in the church that he's built. And second, as we hold tight to the love of God for us in the gospel. So let me say that again. We're going to look at this passage as John walks us through more about love and he's going to help us increase in confidence as we learn to see the spirit at work in the church. And second, as we hold tight to the love of God for us in the gospel. So look at verses 13 to 16a with me right away in the way that John draws us into confidence in our Christian lives as we see the spirit at work in the church. John writes this, By this we know, sounds pretty confident, 
By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is a son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Last week, we ended with verse 12, and we looked then at the way that we can't see God, that no one has ever seen God, John said in that verse, except in one place. We looked at the way that we see God himself living and loving through us in his church when we love one another. You see, Christ City, the miracle of our salvation isn't that we merely believe certain things or merely do certain things, so those things are true, but that God himself abides in us and we in him. That God lives in us. That's a better word than abide. I don't use abide very often in my day-to-day speech, and you probably don't either. But that he lives in us and that we live in him. And we come to have confidence that God does dwell in us, that he does live in us and us in him because of the Holy Spirit that he's given to us, John says. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we can say all of that, but I I realize that talking about union or abiding or living in God, it does feel pretty abstract, (laughs) It's kind of big ideas that are hard to wrap our minds around. And it's a good thing then that the Bible actually illustrates this for us time and again with the illustration of marriage. Paul does this in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. And he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, where John talks about God living in us and us in God, Paul just talks about marriage. He just talks about the miracle of salvation as similar to the way that a man and a woman come together in marriage and become one flesh. Not just sexually, but emotionally and spiritually growing together in unity, in oneness, in this miracle of God. And then as Paul says all that, he says, but I'm not really talking about marriage. I'm talking about what happens between Jesus and his church, between God and us in salvation as we are united together. The thing about this union is that you can actually watch it happen over time in people that have been married for a long time. Because as a couple grows together, living in relationship and love together, abiding with one another, living with one another in relationship that's rich, you watch them be impressioned on one another. Now, Heather and I have been married for almost 11 years, which is longer than a number of you and a lot shorter than some of the rest of you. But it's long enough for us to look back at our marriage, and we often do this and reflect on and sometimes smile and laugh about it a little bit, the ways that I've become a lot more like Heather over 11 years. And the way that she's become a lot more like me. As we've grown together, as we've lived together in love and relationship into this union and abiding with one another. See, our salvation is a little bit like that with God. We are growing in union with him. He lives in us and us in him by the spirit that he's given to us. 
And we see the evidence of that salvation, that union, that abiding, because of that Spirit's work, the Holy Spirit's work, as the Spirit impresses God upon us. As the Spirit forms the character of God in our lives. And when we see God at work in his church, changing us by his Spirit, we grow in confidence that he abides in us, And we abide in him. But how did all this start? Maybe you've wondered that before. How how does this begin? When does God begin this work, this transformative abiding and presence of the Holy Spirit? When does it start? Well, it begins with confessing belief and the message of the apostles that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Look at verses 14 to 15. John says, and we have seen, he's talking again about the apostolic witness, the apostles who were with Jesus. They're the ones who've seen and they're testifying to us. We have seen and we testify, we proclaim, we tell, we teach you that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. That God the father sent Jesus' son into the world to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him. And he in God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, that's the person. God abides in him and he in God. You see, the evidence of God's power and presence that work in us by his Holy Spirit, it begins with confession. Now, I realize that we often take this language of confessing belief in Jesus pretty lightly. Um, You might be like me, who maybe grew up in the church and confessed belief in Jesus maybe a couple hundred of times uh, when you were a young kid, and it was just this thing that you did over and over again because people around you were doing it. But for the early church, this sort of confession, it wasn't a light matter. It was a big deal. Because they were deeply conscious that they lived in a world where everything had a God and that they had to live in loyalty and faithfulness to those gods. The rock had a God. The tree had a God. The temples were full of gods. They lived in a world that was surrounded by gods that needed to be satisfied and pleased with all of their lives. They had to live in loyalty to them. So when they confessed their belief in Jesus, they were confessing a fundamental shift and their allegiance in this world. And to be baptized in the early church, they would first then face the West. They turn to the West and they would publicly denounce and turn away from all the gods that they had formerly served in their lives. They'd repudiate them publicly. And then they would turn towards the East and they would pledge this radical allegiance to Jesus. Instead of all these gods, Jesus, I want to love and live and serve you, live loyally for you and for no other for all of my life. And then they would be led in the darkness to the place of baptism, maybe a little river or stream somewhere. And they would strip naked, surrounded by the church, by the brothers and sisters in Christ. And they'd enter into the waters of baptism to be raised into new life. New life as a follower of Jesus, as a submitted person to the will and the rule of Jesus, a person holding fast to the salvation that can only be found in Jesus. And they knew there'd be consequences because they were turning their backs on what their friends and their families believed and held dear. And they counted the cost and they chose 
regardless of the cost to follow their new Savior, Jesus Christ. So when John says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God, we need to be careful not to read our modern and light views of confessing into this passage. John's saying that God abides with us when we confess with our mouths, with our heart, with our will, that we are surrendering the whole of our lives and our talents and our resources and my thinking to the truth of God's word, to the rule of Jesus and my life given for him as he's been given for me. But with this confession, with this surrender, God abides in us. God produces his own love within us. Look at what John writes in verses 15 and 16. It says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know. Again, that confidence. We've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Now, Christ City, I don't do this often, but in the context of what John's saying, I think that I'm going to do it here. This text, this Greek text, could be translated a little bit differently, and I think ought to be translated a little bit differently. I think we ought to translate this text this way in verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love, not that God has for us, the love that God has within us. You see, John's saying that when we love one another, and the Spirit's present in our lives, proving that we abide in God and He in us, it isn't merely our love that is being given and received. No, our confidence in our Christian confession is because God's Holy Spirit is seen in us and producing His own love in us, that God's love is in us. And we come to know that because His Holy Spirit is present, working it deep in our lives. In Christ City, there is no greater reason and no greater evidence to have confidence that the Christian way is true and real than because the Holy Spirit is present and has been present in his church for 2,000 years, changing it, producing this sort of love within it. I want to show you another example of this in history. You see, we live in a world today with an incredible amount of literacy, This literacy has been preserved, it's been alphabetized, and local languages are all over the place uh, put down in writing. But where did that come from? Where did all this literacy in this world come from? We assume, I think, that it was merely the natural result of scientific progress and the goodwill of scholars who just kind of gradually cause these things to happen all over the world around us. But we need to realize that that's not true. That during the age of exploration and Western expansion, it wasn't the educated or the powerful or the wealthy who labored for literacy. It was the love of God shown for various people groups through his church that produced this literacy for these peoples. Take India as an example. The Indian Christian intellectual Vishal Mangalwadi, he writes about the way that prior to British imperialism, India's court language was Persian. This was because in the 16th and 17th centuries, India was ruled by the Mongols. And for them, ruling via the Persian language was advantageous because it kept the local peoples oppressed. After all, if you were a local Indian speaking an Indian dialect and you showed up at court and the court language was Persian, that the court documents was in Persian, then you would not receive justice. And you could not fight for justice. 
But this same practice continued after the Mongol Empire under British imperialism. And the enormously powerful East Indian trading company didn't use Persian as a language, they used English. And they were financially motivated to educate Indians minimally in English, but not to give them their local languages. And yet, though British imperialism has little to do with Christianity, it began to provide opportunities for Christians to bring the love of God to India in opposition, fighting against the motivations of secular imperial power to help the local peoples. Vishal Mangalwadi writes about this. He says, Neither scholars nor the East India Company had an interest in educating a class of Indians who would enrich Indian vernaculars to local languages and educate the masses and prepare India for liberty and self-government. That was the agenda of the followers of Jesus who sought to obey the command to love their neighbors as themselves. In order to give us our national language, missionaries struggled against the East India Company's commercial interest. Bible translators and missionaries did not merely give me my mother tongue Hindi. Every living literary language in India is a testimony to their labor. I want you to hear that. Every living literary language in India is a testimony to their labor. In 2005, forgive me for pronouncing these things poorly, a, a Malayali scholar from Mumbai, Dr. Babu Burghese, submitted a 700-page doctoral thesis to the University of Nagpur. It demonstrated that Bible translators using the dialects of mostly illiterate Indians created 73 modern literary languages. These include the national languages of, Hin of India, Hindi, of Pakistan, Urdu, and Bangladesh, Bengali. Five Brahmin scholars examined Dr. Fergazi's thesis and awarded him a PhD in 2008. They also unanimously recommended that his thesis, when published as a book, should be required reading for students of Indian linguistics. Christy, I use India as one example. But this story isn't unique. Bible translators, like Wycliffe Bible translators, they have a long history of going to distant places to bless local peoples with the word of God in their own languages when nobody else is motivated to they have a long history to create literacy, to preserve the local dialects, and to bring greater flourishing to peoples that have been neglected by the rest of us. So why was Christianity so central in the birth of so much global literacy? We need to ask ourselves that question. And why didn't literacy just grow through scientific progress and the goodwill of educated people? It's because of the uniqueness of God's sacrificial love at work by his Holy Spirit in his church. It's because of the uniqueness of the Holy, Holy Spirit loving the love of God through us in the local church. You see, if you were an educated, privileged person in the West living in 1840, as one example, what would motivate you to leave behind your comfort and the advantages in your culture to go and enter into a world where modern medicine wasn't able to cure you of the malaria and the fevers that you might encounter? What would motivate you to risk your life and to live in suffering in order to bless others who could not bless you? You wouldn't do it. But a Christian would. 
because of the sacrificial, personally costly love of God that they knew for them in Jesus. That was at work in them by the Holy Spirit. Chris, do you love and the love of the Bible has conquered this world. Today in Vancouver, everybody wants love. But we want the fragrance of love without the deep Christian self-sacrificial substance. You see, this world doesn't want to take up crosses and deny themselves. They don't want to take on the cost of bearing others' burdens personally. And I think you know this because you know how much you don't want to do even the simplest things to deny yourself and to love others in your natural self. We all struggle with this. And so because of our sin today, love then is diluted down and polluted down and talked down to just supporting someone else's choices. Not this beautiful sacrifice, but supporting someone else's choices, regardless of whether those choices will lead them to greater life or to death. For example, in our country, love is being redefined today in its application to end-of-life issues. You see, as early as the 11th century, Christians took their call to sacrificial love in imitation of Jesus, and they applied it to the care of the sick and languishing. If you had an incurable disease, you could come to a hospice back in those days. And imagine how that would have felt. Imagine actually being somebody, say, with incurable sores, with an infection that wouldn't go away, where you are despicable and abhorred in the eyes of those around you. They don't want to be near you. And they were worried that they might get the contagion that you had if they were in your presence. Imagine coming to a place where Christians would love you, where you would be received with affection and with care in your disease. But today, because we want the fragrance of love without the sacrificial substance, we've substituted Christian hospice with Bill C7. And with this bill that was opposed, by the way, by disability rights groups, First Nations leaders, the conservative and NDP parties, hundreds of physicians, and the United Nations, our assisted suicide laws have been greatly expanded. You see, formerly our assisted suicide laws applied to those whose death was reasonably foreseeable. That was the language of the courts. But now any patient who is suffering due to disability or disease or anything else can make a request to end their life after a 90-day waiting period. And this is a problem. And it leads to the harm of vulnerable, suffering people. Disability rights advocate Liz Carr, she criticizes Bill C-7 this way. She said, when non-disabled people talk of suicide, they're discouraged and offer prevention. When a disabled person talks about it, though, suddenly the conversation is overtaken with words like choice and autonomy. Well, talk of prevention and mental health support are rare. And further responding to Bill C-7 and Liz Carr's comment, Andre Shuton, a Canadian constitutional lawyer, he writes this, as if a depressed but able-bodied 18-year-old expresses a wish to die, the big we, family, community, medical and medical systems, We'll do whatever we can to offer suicide prevention. Police will even arrest and detain a suicidal person in order to preserve their life. But if a person with a disability expresses a wish to die, we are supposed to assist them in their suicide. We jump to their aid, not with Christian sacrificial love, but with something else. A suicide helpline takes on a whole new meaning. In Canada, hospice has been redefined from the love of God in the church, by the power of his Holy Spirit and sacrificial love. 
and dignity bestowing support and care for the sick and dying to the right to die. This is not Christian love. It's just removing the need for it. Christy, we have something beautiful and unique to offer in this world. We have the love of God himself who sacrificed to die for sinners, poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So how can we become Christians then who love according to the deep, rich, society-transforming love of God for us in Jesus? How can we be freed from our selfishness and our idolatry to comfort and ease to actually love one another well? There's only one way. It starts with a growing confidence that God loves you. Look at John's words in verse 16b to 19. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. See, John starts these verses by continuing to talk about confidence. And as he has said again and again, there is only one way that we will be confident that we are truly walking with God. It's if we love like he loves. He goes on and he says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. If we live like God himself lives in this world, we will have confidence. That's a pretty crazy high bar to live up to on the first read, isn't it? But John isn't talking about perfection. He's not saying to love exactly like God loved. He's talking about growing likeness in an image of imitating God like that marriage slowly rubs off on each party and they grow to become like one another. He's talking about children growing in maturity and imperfectly becoming more and more imitating of their parents. He's saying we'll be confident in our Christian faith and in our relationship with God as we increase in love for him and for others. So, Does that mean I just need to go out there and try harder and do better to love people as God has loved me? No, that's not the case. This is not a try harder, do better text. Look at verse 18 and 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. You see, our love for others, Christ City, hear this, our love for others begins with knowing God's love for us. Last summer, some of the men in the church read this excellent book with me called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And in this book, we're confronted again and again with this majesty of God's grace and his incredible love for sinners like us. And as we read this book and as we discussed it, we found again and again and again that we had a problem. We didn't believe it. We didn't believe it. That again and again, we struggled to believe that God would love us like that. 
That our expectation for God wasn't that he was there waiting to love and bless us, but that he's there waiting somehow to punish us. I think that's probably the case for you too. If I ask you, do you believe that God loves you? You'll probably answer yes. But what if I ask you this? Do you believe? Look me in the eyes and, and, and know that I'm asking you, like feel this in your heart. Do you believe that God likes you? Do you believe that God delights in you? I think when we know who we really are and we come before the word of God and we start to see our sin, we struggle to believe that he could delight in us. That he could love me. But John's telling us here, Christ, that God's love for us is perfect love. That he's dealt with our sins at the cross of Jesus. That he's not waiting to punish us, waiting for the day that we screw up just to pour out what he really wants to pour out on us, which is punishment. No, he's waiting to bless us and to love us and give us more and more grace. He wants to lavish us with that love. He's working hard to cause us to believe the unbelievable great extent of his love for us so that we'll stop being afraid. So we'll stop fearing him. So we'll live with confidence in his love. Christ City, John knows that we struggle with this. He knows it so much that he reminded us two times that God is love and that he first loved us in the last 19 verses. His God is love in verse 8. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us in verse 10. God is love in verse 16. We love because he first loved us in verse 19. So here's the bottom line. Our love for others begins with knowing God's love for us. God's love for me. His love for you. That he sees us as we truly are and loves us anyway. Forgiving us in the gospel. He showed us that love through a bleeding savior. As the father's only son went to the cross to suffer and die as the judge of all became the judged in your place. To deal fully and completely with your sin. Punishment is over because God's love is perfect love at the cross of Christ. You don't have to be afraid of him. Come to him in humility and repentance. Come to him again and again and again. You can't sin too many times for God to forgive you. Come to him. He's for you, he loves you, and he delights in you. So what can change our selfish hearts to live outward in love towards others? It's only this. It's this love of God in the gospel making its way into our hearts. Seeping down into the pores of who we are as human beings. Filling us up with the miraculous, incredible love of God for an undeserving people. There is no fear in love, John writes. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. I want to close with this story this morning. In Nazi Germany, there was a pastor who saw the evils that his country was embracing and who fought against those evils with the confidence in his Christian faith. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And pastors around him were capitulating to the, the spirit of the age, going far away from the love of God. 
and embracing a lie. Even saying things like, Hitler is the way of the spirit and the will of God for the German people to enter the church of Christ. And things like, Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler. Obscene, horrendous things. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in the face of persecution and capitulation by his culture, was full of conviction about what his country needed most. In the face of Nazism, Bonhoeffer lived for the things that we've been talking about this morning. In the face of Nazism, he knew that the truth of God's word and the real presence of the Holy Spirit would be seen in the church loving one another. So he began an illegal Christian community in a seminary. They lived together. And he began to teach them and equip them. He equipped them according to the ordinary, old-fashioned truths of the gospel. Christian love. Old-fashioned words like sin and faith and repentance and grace burying themselves deep in a community of people filled with the Holy Spirit. And he did it so that Germany would learn the love of a God of perfect love. So they would be taught and empowered by God's love for us to love one another. Bonhoeffer wrote this in his book, Life Together. God himself has undertaken to teach brotherly love. When God was merciful, when he revealed Jesus Christ to us as our brother, when he won our hearts by his love, this is the beginning of our instruction in divine love. When God was merciful to us, we learn to be merciful with our brethren. When we receive forgiveness instead of judgment, we too were made ready to forgive our brethren. What God did to us, we then owed to others. The more we received of the love of God for us, the more we were able to give of it. And the more meager our brotherly love, the less were we living by God's mercy and love. Thus, God himself taught us to meet one another as God has met us in Christ. Christy, do you have confidence in your Christian life? What's most important for Bonhoeffer is most important for us today too. The conviction and courage and confidence that we need to live in this world and accomplish good is not going to be found in a new ideology. And will be found in redefining love. It will be found in the old-fashioned gospel at work in Jesus' church. Do you want to live richly and confident lives full of the Spirit of God who is love? Then stick close to this gospel message. Confess your sin. Rejoice in grace. And love this church willingly and self-sacrificially and fully. And you will grow in confidence by the power of the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need you. We need your spirit. Would you open the eyes of our hearts to see and to glory and rejoice in the extent of your love for us in Jesus so that we'd be changed, so we'd be shaken out of our idolatry and our laziness to serve you without fear, full of joy and love for our brothers and sisters. Make us willing to sacrifice, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.